Amen. Well, again, I want to welcome those of you who are new here today, and uh, we are in the last couple of weeks of our uh, series called Age to Age. We're doing sort of a flyover of the entire Old Testament, and our, in, in the series, we're trying to solve two key problems. One is that most of us have some understanding of the Old Testament or know some stories like Ten Commandments or Noah and the Ark, but we have no idea how it all fits together. It's kind of a jumbled up, disordered, chaotic closet. So our goal is to organize the, the Old Testament closet so we understand how this whole story fits together because everyone writing the New Testament loves the Old Testament. And they're writing the story of Jesus as a fulfillment of all that came before. So the whole Old Testament sort of hangs together. We want to help us understand how it fits together. The second goal of this whole series is to help us to see a more faithful picture of God. Because some of us have a picture of God in the Old Testament as like angry and mean and then nice Jesus comes along and kind of tidies things up. But what we're trying to get at throughout the course of this series is that there's a more faithful picture of God, a truer picture of God, who is the same God who is faithful age to age. The same God that Jesus shows us is the one that is at work all throughout the Old Testament. And to help us with both these goals, you've got these bookmarks. I've strewn about every week. We've had these. Feel free to grab another one if you need to. If you're online, click on the show more section. You can download the bookmark as well. And this breaks up the entire Old Testament in one bookmark, an easy kind of reference to hang on to. And uh, we're not going to go through this whole thing again, but where we started week one was in Genesis chapter 12, page 12 of the Bible. God says, this thing has gone into a mess, it's kind of fallen apart, but I'm going to redeem the mess. And here's how I'm going to do it. Abram, through your family, I'm going to bless all people for all time. That is the promise God makes on page 12 of the whole Bible. It drives all the rest of the whole Bible. All the way through the last page of the Bible, God is fulfilling his promise to Abram that through him and his family, all the nations would be blessed. So over the last couple of weeks, we've skipped ahead and we're going to let these things kind of play out. All these different books of the Bible are written or described these periods of time. And we're in that period of time called the divided monarchy where there's a civil war. And a lot of the Bible, uh, kind of Old Testament covers these passages. So again, we have space up there to write that in if you're looking to do that. If you want to track how the Bible fits together, the Old Testament fits together. If you're at home, you can push pause right now on the live stream and uh, get it. If you're, miss if you're here and you don't get all this, you can always go back and look at it on the live stream as well. But the idea that the, the scriptures tell about this period of time, it's a pretty critical period of time where there's a split between the northern kingdom called Israel for the rest of the, 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 the Old Testament or also Ephraim, which is one of the big tribes in the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom is called Judah. That's where Jerusalem is. And and last week you looked at this north-south split. It's a crucial period in the time of the Old Testament Israel and the challenges they faced all throughout this period of the time. The northern kingdom has approximately zero faithful kings. And they are the first to fall. The southern kingdom has only a handful of faithful kings and they last a little bit longer as God's people before they also fall. We're going to be talking about sort of the whole way these things fall. But as you can see down there at the bottom right there in 722, Samaria falls. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. So in 722, uh, the Assyrian army comes through and just wipes out Samaria. Now here's a really, really important question here that you need to be thinking about. If you were going to be king or queen of a conquering nation, which is likely, right, for all of you, what do you do with people you just conquered? Because here's the problem with conquered nations. They don't like being conquered, and they often band together to try to overthrow their conquerors. What would you do if you're the king of queen of a conquering nation? Well, here's what the Assyrians did. What they would do, they would conquer a nation, and then they would export like half the population. And then they would import people from all these other nations, spoke different languages, had different cultures, had different religions. Some of them didn't like each other at all. 
And so they would mix them all together. So the people were a divided people. They were a weak people. And so they would not band together to try to overthrow the people who would just wipe them out, a.k.a. the Assyrians. A brilliant, brilliant way to manage conquered people who like to rebel and overthrow the people who have just conquered them. And so this is what the Assyrians do. And so when the Assyrians go to Samaria and they export a bunch of people and bring in a bunch of other nations, these people don't like each other. They don't speak the same language. But over several generations, they start to kind of intermarry and intermingle. And so by the time you get to Jesus' day, the Samaritans and the Jews in the south hate each other. All these conflicts. Because the way that you knew you were truly Jewish, at least according to the Old Testament and according to the Jews, was who was really in the family line of Abram. That's what mattered. And if you married foreigners, you were no longer pure-blooded Jewish. No longer in the family line of Abram. And so the people in the southern kingdom and Jerusalem, they despised the Samaritans. The Samaritans despised them back. All this tension, all this animosity, occasional armed conflict, we'd call even little minor terrorist events happening. So when Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan, everyone's shocked. They hate the Samaritans. All this history. All this animosity. So in 722... The capital of Samaria falls, a major, major milestone in the Old Testament story. Back to the timeline, about 20, about 20 years after the fall of Samaria, the Assyrians come through the same, the same nation, and they attack Jerusalem, and they try to overthrow Jerusalem. But through a miracle, God delivers Jerusalem. Jerusalem is spared. It's a beautiful story, and it's a miracle, and the people are praising God, but they make a mistake And the mistake that they make is they think that, therefore, they're invincible. We got this. We got God's temple. We got God. God's not going to let Jerusalem fall because the temple is here. So we're okay. We're cool. We're safe. And so the people are trusting in the temple of God, thinking that because they have the temple, God's not going to let them be conquered, no matter how far they stray from God's purposes for them as a nation. But what they're forgetting is the temple isn't what saves them. It's God that saves them. And so they're trusting in the wrong thing. So let me ask you an opening question this morning. Have you ever trusted in the wrong thing before? Almost all of us have trusted in the wrong person before, right? So almost all of us have had people that should have been trustworthy or that we trusted that betrayed us or hurt us. Some of our deepest wounds for many of us are people that we should have been able to trust but that betrayed that trust. And some of those are the, some of those are the darkest days of some of our lives. So we've all had people that we should have been able to trust that proved not to be trustworthy. But have you ever trusted the wrong thing before? Right? Almost all of us want our workplaces. That's a thing, to be a, a place that treats their people well. Almost all of us want sort of uh, a, a political party, the politics, the political system to work, or at least our preferred sort of political party. Almost all of us want the legal system to deliver just and righteous sort of legal sort of precedent and decisions. Almost all of us, some of us trust the stock market. Some of us want to trust in the media, or at least our preferred media news outlet to tell us what's true. We want to be able to trust in our schools and HOA boards, and we want to be able to trust in all these different things. Listen, there's nothing wrong with that, but what happens when those things fail us? We get cynical and disillusioned, don't we? We get cynical and disillusioned because we want to trust in things to actually work the way they're supposed to work, but then they don't work, and then what happens is people get disillusioned, they start to get really, really cynical, and things and trust starts to erode in really significant ways. That's how societies get dysfunctional, which you can see pieces of that happening right here right now, right? Listen, as, as Christians, as Jesus people, we want to cultivate trust, right? We want to be trustworthy people, become trustworthy people. 
And then as Christians in your workplace or at your school or in your neighborhood, wherever you have influence, you want to help build trustworthy things, trustworthy school boards, trustworthy businesses, trustworthy workplaces, right? We want to build trustworthy things. But my friends, at the end of the day, there are no people and no thing that, we can, that can save us. Only the Lord our God, who is Lord over all those things and all those people can save us. Our hope, our hope for rescue, for salvation, for redemption of all the things, not in media, not in politics, not in the legal system. As much as we want those things to be trustworthy and good, we hope in the one who is Lord over all the things and over the, all the people to be the one who saved us. Another way to say this is this. We love people. We create and use useful and beautiful things, but we trust in the Lord our God. We, we love people. That's what God calls us to do, love our neighbor, right? We create and build, use the gifts God's given us to build beautiful and useful things. We put them to good use, but we don't trust in those things. At the end of the day, we trust in the Lord our God to be the thing, to be the one who brings salvation and rescue. Let me ask you this morning, my friends, any of you coming in here this morning having trusted the wrong person or the wrong thing? Any of you coming in here this morning disillusioned and cynical about politics, media, social media, friends? Any of you going into Thanksgiving feeling the disappointment in your family or certain people in your family and just not sure what to do about that. There's an invitation today to trust in the one who is Lord over all things and over all people and to put your trust in him. That's exactly what the prophet Jeremiah is doing in the passage that Elizabeth just read for us in Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7, the people are putting their trust in the temple. So here's what God does and here's the word of the Lord from Jeremiah, through Jeremiah to the people of Jerusalem. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Back when I was in uh, high school, I took an intro to business class. And uh, this was a long, long, long time ago before the internet, right? So uh, the number one rule of business in business class in the early 90s was location, 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 right? That was the most important thing for any business, right? Where are you located, where you built your business, where you planted, you had to be seen by the right people. Now, again, this was before the internet. This was back in the days when the phones were still attached to the wall. Remember that? And I think dinosaurs still roamed the land as well. That's what my kids say. But the number one rule back then was location, location, location. And this is exactly what Jeremiah is doing as he goes to the stand of the, the, the gates of the temple. Location, location, location. There's a number of reasons why Jeremiah goes to stand at the gates of the temple. One, prophets love drama and dramatic flair. And this is exactly what he's come to do, right? He's going to go to the temple and speak a word about the temple. Two, it's a high traffic area. Lots of people coming and going. But three, this is really important. Jeremiah is standing at the gate of the temple, outside the temple, on the way into the temple, because here's what's gone wrong with the temple. The word of God is no longer spoken inside the temple. That's what's gone wrong. The word of God is no longer spoken inside the temple. Things have gone sideways. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the story of Solomon dedicating this temple that the people are trusting in. It's a beautiful day, beautiful celebration. We read this passage last week, and that was about 910 B.C., so that's several hundred years before Jeremiah. Right? We're going to do a lot of time jumping, okay, so stick with me here. We're going to skip back to 910 B.C. This is the dedication of the temple, this beautiful scene that was super important to the people of God in 910 B.C. when Solomon dedicated this temple. When the priests withdrew from the holy place with the Ark of the Covenant, just the Ark of God's presence, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. 
The glory cloud of God filled the temple. That was God's presence. So God's presence now on earth is right there in the temple in Jerusalem party time. People celebrate this. This is a big, big, big deal. That was about 910 B.C. So fast forward now to about the year 590 B.C., okay? We're going to pick up another prophet named Ezekiel. And Ezekiel was alive about the same time as Jeremiah. And the same time as Jeremiah, he's prophesying, and, and he has this vision of the glory cloud and of the temple. And his vision is one of the most heartbreaking pictures in the whole Old Testament because that glory cloud is about to move. So here's Ezekiel's vision. Again, we're fast-forwading now from 910 B.C. to 590 B.C. Here's Ezekiel's vision. The cloud, the glory cloud of God's presence filled the temple. The court was full of the radiance of the glory of the Lord. That's all good news. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house. So the glory moves from inside the temple to one of the seven gates around the temple, just like where Jeremiah is standing and then in one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the entire Old Testament, the vision continues. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. So here's the bad news. God's presence is no longer in the temple. And the people are saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple is going to save us. The temple is going to save us. Not realizing it's not the building that's going to save them. It's God's presence that's going to save them. And yet, God's presence is no longer there in the temple. It has left the temple because the people have betrayed him. Now, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are prophesying about the same time and things are not good. But they're not the only ones prophesying. There are other prophets also talking about this period of time. And these other prophets are spouting uh, something that's familiar to many of us in 2023. The phrase is fake news. These other prophets are spouting fake news. Here's the fake news that the people, that the false prophets are saying to the people that he's speaking against. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The people, the false prophets are offering false comfort. God's not going to let anything happen to them, no matter how far they get away from God, because the temple of the Lord is here. And no matter how far from God they get as a people, the temple's going to save them. And they are very far from God, being God's people at this point. Here is the litany of charges that Jeremiah brings against the people, and it's not a particularly pleasant list. Here's the litany of charges from what Elizabeth just read. You need to deal with each other justly. You need to stop oppressing the foreigner. The fatherless, the widow, do not shed innocent blood, do not follow other gods. You steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods. Let me ask you a question. If you stacked the Ten Commandments up against this, how would they be doing? They're failing at every single turn, aren't they? And so Jeremiah says, you do all these things, and then you come in here and stand before this, in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable, terrible things? No. You can't do detestable, terrible things and then go to church and pretend you're okay. It's not how it works. It's not how it works. What was happening inside the temple, sacrifices, prayer, worship, teaching, was supposed to shape who they were outside the temple. What kind of society they're creating. What kind of people they're becoming. And they've forgotten this. The spiritual life of the people of Jerusalem has devolved into empty religious ritual. Fruitless. Not changing any lives. Not shaping them into being the people of God that God intended them to be. And my friends, we live in the South. You know about empty religious ritual, don't you? 
Some of you spend a lot of your life in empty religious ritual. Some of you are still there. Empty religious ritual. Run through the motions, check the boxes. It's like Vegas. What happens there stays there. Nothing affects the rest of your life. And God says, this is not real faith. This is not what I've called you to do. I'm not just trying to keep you busy with religious stuff. I'm trying to shape you, shape your character to becoming men and women who look a lot more like the men and women I designed for you to be. But there's other people saying, we're okay and you're okay. You don't have to change a thing, which is exactly what we like to hear, isn't it? This past week, Jaime had this great insight in the uh, small group materials. And the small group materials, they were talking about so these, the, the, uh, the, the prophet saying, hey, we're okay. We're going to be all right. Everything's all right. The temple of God's got us. We got us. He, he pointed this out. He said this. We are all prone to wanting to believe the kinds of things that affirm our current state and require little to no change from us. Isn't that so true? Listen, here's the beauty of the internet. You can find, you can, if you look hard enough, you can find someone who agrees with you about everything. You can find a voice who can agree with you about anything you want, anything you want to justify, anything you want to rationalize. You can find a voice that's going to agree with you. And if you spend your whole life just looking for voices to affirm you that don't challenge you at all, you are going to be completely stunted as a man or woman. You're going to be stunted emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, relationally, and you're not going to come close to being the man or woman God designed you to be. My friends, are you in a season right now? Well, you're holding on to voices and just looking for voices that will justify and affirm you just as you are without any challenge whatsoever. Are you just looking for ways to prop yourself up? Listen, this is the way it goes, right? This is normal. I like voices that prop me up, that affirm who I am and what I'm already doing, right? But are you in a season of your life right now where you're just dug in on something and God's like, all you're doing is just sort of listening in your own echo chamber to people who agree with you all the time? Because here's what's true. You are both beautiful, made in God's image, and there's things about you that are absolutely wonderful, and there are parts of you that are hijacked by sin, corrupted by sin, and the Lord says, that has to be dealt with. The biblical word is repentance. I have to be willing to acknowledge my sin and ask the Lord to forgive me and turn from it. My friends, if we refuse to do this work, we are stalled out in arrested development, and some, like some, of, us, some of us know people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s who never grew up because they refuse to ever be wrong about anything. Refuse to be challenged by anything or anybody. And Jeremiah levels this accusation. He says, what are you doing? And he says this, he says, you, you're following these other gods to your own harm. You're chasing after self-justification, self-righteousness, doing the things I wanna do on my own time. Listen, you can chase after other gods all you want. There's only one God who leads to flourishing. The only God that leads you to flourishing is the God who created you, who invented you, who knows who you are from the depths of your being to the outer reaches of your influence. There's only one God who will lead you to flourishing. It's not money, it's not career, it's not your own self-righteousness, it's not your own justification. There's only one God who you can follow that won't lead you to your own harm is the God of Abram who made a promise that through his family, all peoples are going to be blessed. And so Jeremiah is calling out bad religion. This is what bad religion looks like, right? Bad religion looks like I am wicked out there doing whatever I want to out there, and I prop myself as a cover out here with religious stuff. This is exactly what bad religion looks like. We, we've seen it. We know how it is. Some of us have been stuck in that loop before, and Jeremiah is calling it out. And listen, Jeremiah is not just being a jerk. He's not just being a self-righteous religious Jerk, he's saying, this is a problem, this matters, and it's going to have consequences. And in fact, back to our timeline, and back to your little, uh, your bookmark there, 
in 587, this temple that Jeremiah is standing in front of is going to be destroyed, totally steamrolled. Totally, and Babylon's going to come through and just knock the whole thing out. They're going to take a bunch of people off to captivity. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You might remember those stories. Those are all happening in exile. At that point, kind of as you get to the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire, we're going to talk about that a little bit more next week. And there's going to be some glimmers of hope along the way. You can see there, about 70 years after they get the, the, the destruction of the temple, they rebuild the temple. Ezra leads a whole bunch of people, exiles, back into Jerusalem. And they rebuild the temple. And the temple is rebuilt, and it's a day of celebration and party. But there's one really, really heartbreaking thing about this new temple. The glory cloud doesn't refill it. God's presence isn't actually there. So there's a building but God's presence isn't as thick as it was with that original temple. And for much of those next 500 years, as they go from conquest to conquest, as they get conquered over and over again by those different superpowers, there's not a whole lot to celebrate. It's mostly a dark and bleak period of time. There's a few glimpses of God showing up. The celebration of Hanukkah happens during this period of time, right? So there's a, a few miracles and a few great stories, but mostly it's hard and sad and bleak for 500 years until one holy night. There's a baby born under the reign of Caesar Augustus in the little town of Bethlehem. And he's from the line of Abram because, he, because it was a promise to Abram that through his family, all people were going to be blessed. And he's from the line of King David because he told, because God had promised David that there's going to be a king forever sitting on the throne that's from your family line. And as the gospel writers sit down to write the story of Jesus, they are going to use temple language in some really, really interesting ways, really intentionally. They're going to describe Jesus as the new temple. In fact, they use some of these words like full of the spirit, just like the temple used to be full of God's spirit, full of the glory cloud, full of God's presence there. Now there's Jesus who is full of the spirit. They're going to talk about how Jesus displays the glory of God. It's like the glory of God used to fill the temple. Now it's filling this one human being. In the passage we read this morning, Jeremiah 7, this is one of Jeremiah's accusations to the people. Jeremiah says this, he says, hey, has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? That's Jeremiah 7, 11. Fast forward to Jesus, hundreds of years later, he says this when he's upset about some things. He says, Matthew 21, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a what? He quotes this passage. So listen, Jeremiah, everyone who hears what Jesus is saying knows he's quoting Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7 happens just a few years before the destruction of the temple. And by the way, den of robbers doesn't mean that there's buying and selling and stealing happening right there. My brother pointed this out last week. Uh, a den of robbers is where you go after you've been done robbing. You rob out there, and the den of robbers is where you come and celebrate. Look what we stole. It's a place of safety for thieves. The temple has become a place of safety for thieves. The den of robbers. Look how much we stole. Look how great it is. And so Jesus is calling them out. And everyone who hears him say this is totally aware that he's quoting Jeremiah 7, which is the, which is the thing that the, that the prophet said just years before the temple got steamrolled. Later, Jesus has a different kind of conflict with some different religious leaders who get all upset about him and, and with him. And here's what Jesus says to them. Destroy this temple. I'll raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it again in three days? But the temple he'd spoken of was his body. After he raised from the dead, his temples recalled what he had said. This temple, my body, when the temple was destroyed, when the temple was destroyed, Jesus has come as the fulfillment of the temple. Jesus is the true temple. 
And he's, and he's saying, hey, listen, this temple is going to get raised to the ground. And here's what happens. In the year 70 AD, within the lifetime of most of Jesus' followers, the year 70 AD, the Romans get tired of the rebellious Jews. You know what they come, do? They come through and do? They come through and steamroll the temple all over again, just like they had done after Jeremiah prophesied against it hundreds of years earlier. The same, same temple that they had trusted in to be their salvation wasn't their salvation. It was God himself who was their salvation. And the New Testament authors are adamant, Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. The place where God's spirit dwells, the place where God walks on earth, God's touch point between heaven and earth is not a building, it's a human being. And everywhere Jesus goes, he is being the temple, the true temple for the people, the true temple for Israel, particularly when he forgives sins. He is the one who's full of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who's the fulfillment and being what the temple should have been, the touch point between God and the world in him and in his presence, in his power. And after his death and resurrection, what Jesus says to his followers is, Hang out and wait for the same Holy Spirit. Because the same Holy Spirit that filled the temple in the Old Testament, that filled Jesus in his life, is going to make them walking, living, breathing temples. Hang out. Wait for the Spirit. The Spirit's going to fill you. You're going to become a, a, a living temple as well. And then the Spirit falls on them and gives them all kinds of power and releases all kinds of grace. The temple's no longer a building. Now it's the church. God's people are now the touch point between God and a weary and broken world to bring the grace and the love and the power of God to the world. You are now a temple. Everyone who trusted Jesus Christ is given the same spirit to fill you that you might represent God in a broken and weary world. In fact, later in the New Testament, Paul is going to be writing to the Corinthians. He's trying to call them to live sexually pure lives. And here's what he says. Here's his argument he makes. He uses the exact same temple language. Flee from sexual immorality. Whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are what? Temples of the Holy Spirit. Who is in you, whom you've received from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. My friends, Paul's a good Jew. He didn't even like Jesus initially. He rejected him. And then he has an encounter with Jesus, and now he has a whole different view of what the temple is and what it means to be uh, God's people, what it means to be full of the Spirit. And all the New Testament writers, they all knew and loved the Old Testament. And all the New Testament writers, they were heartbroken that God's glory cloud never filled that second temple after it was rebuilt. But they all come brimming with good news. God's Spirit, the God who is faithful age to age, has come in Jesus and now is available to all people. The Spirit of God was upon Jesus. The same Spirit that filled the temple filled Jesus and is filling you and me. And the whole New Testament calls followers of Jesus to go live like temples. Go be full of God's Spirit and demonstrate God's Spirit to the world. Go be a walking, living, breathing temple of the Spirit. Go out into the world. Bring salt and light. Being salty and bright into a broken and weary world to bring healing, renewal, to invite people to repent. To call people into a relationship with the God of the universe. That spirit filling each one of us. The temple of the living God. God's presence among us and with us. You, my friends, are the temple of the living God. Go live like it. Today's wildly important take-homes. Here's, here's where we are with the story of Old Testament Israel. The people of Old Testament Israel trusted in the temple rather than God. Using their religious practice 
as cover for wickedness, and there were consequences, right? This is tempting all the time. It's tempting all the time. You see, again, we know people like this. We see people like this who have religious practices that prop themselves up. Listen, if our religious practices are only propping us up and are never challenging us, that's when you know you've got a religion in your own image and religious practices in your own image. And so the call throughout the scriptures from Jeremiah to Jesus over and over again is to move beyond mere religion, but to engage with the presence of the living God, my friend, in other words, there are no things and people that can save us. Our hope is not in our religious practices. It's not in anything. It's not in any good luck charms, not a cross around your neck or a lucky rabbit's foot, not in your zodiac sign, not in any of those things, not in the stock market, not in you getting the right politician that you want to to get into play or to get into office. Our hope and our, our hope for salvation, for making things right ultimately is not in anything or any people. It is the one who is Lord over all things and all people. That's the only thing that can save us. We love people. We use and create beautiful, faithful, trustworthy things, but our trust is in the Lord our God. I want to invite you to beware of looking for things that only affirm your current state and require little to no change. That's a thing that all of us fall into. We all like it when people say we're doing great and we don't need to change. Nothing about us needs to change. But beware of just glumming onto and holding onto the things that prop you up as you are and that don't challenge you in any way, shape, or form. And then finally, let's like, let's like the map of the glory of the Lord, the presence of the Lord. It filled the temple for hundreds of years. And then in a heartbreaking moment, it left the temple and then it filled Jesus, who is the perfect fulfillment of the temple. And now that glory, the spirit fills believers, the place where God's glory, God's presence intersects the world. And so, my friends, Merry Christmas a month early. You now are full of the spirit. All those who trust in Jesus, who believe in Christ Jesus, are full of the spirit, the presence of God. And the invitation, as you go into Thanksgiving week, and maybe you're going to see family that you haven't seen in a long time, maybe people who drive you crazy, your job is to be full of the Spirit in those moments, in those places, and say, what does it mean for me to live out this life that the Lord has called me into, the gift of grace that's been poured out into me? My hope and my prayer is that you and I will be faithful to represent that good God who is faithful age to age. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being kind to us and faithful to us. And we pray that our hearts and our minds and our spirits would be open to receiving the Holy Spirit. And Lord, if there's places in our lives where we're trusting in things or trusting in the wrong people, rather than trusting in you, we want to let go of those things and those people. We want to put our trust in the Lord our God. And Lord, if there are places where we are in our own echo chambers, just things that are propping us up and making us feel good about ourselves, and there's no challenge or nothing kind of coming up against us to sort of push us, forgive us and help us be open to places where we need to to make change, to repent. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the final fulfillment of that temple. And we ask that you would make us living, breathing, walking temples as well. Would we represent you and live up to that great gift and that great calling you've given to us. That we might be instruments of that blessing that you want to pour out to all peoples all over the world, including the people we're going to see this week, Thanksgiving week, family. Friends, so come, Holy Spirit, fill us with a fresh filling and help us to be your people, to represent you faithfully and well. We pray and ask in Jesus' strong, mighty name. Amen, amen, and amen.